This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Welcome to Behind the Rhine, the story and science of cheese. I'm your host, Claire, and today we're going to talk about sheep's milk cheese. So I asked a few friends of mine, without warning, if they could name 10 cheeses in under 30 seconds. Let's see how they did. No, but how should I answer them? Just like you. Oh gosh, I'm so nervous. Okay. Okay. Um, Cheddar. Cheddar. Gouda. Brie. Okay, blue cheese. Fresh goat cheese. Um, oh, there's more type. Manchego. Manchego. Did I say it right? <laughs> Manchego. What is Manchego? <laughs> it's like Jeopardy. Parmesan. Pecorino. Uh, um, um, Wensleydale. Uh, American cheese. Velveeta cheese. <laughs> there's only one more that I need. Okay. Camembert! And do you know which of those cheeses are made with sheep's milk? Um, okay. Sheep cheese. I can't. Hold on, but maybe can you give me a hint? It wasn't Manchego, was it? You know what? Yes. Now I'm looking, remembering at labels and it's like de oveja, which is from the sheep. And, oh, actually, wait, no, you named two on there. You also named Pecorino. Oh, this is not fair. I feel like I feel like when we went to this conversation, you should have been like, do a little bit of basic Wikipediaing of cheese, and then I'm going to ask you about origins and countries, and then I would have been prepared. <laughs> well, um, I guess that went as well as planned. If we look around at common European cheeses, we see sheep's milk everywhere. Go to France, and you see Roquefort blue cheese all over the place. Go to Italy and ask what one of the most common Italian cheeses is. It's Pecorino. And, of course, go to Spain and ask what the most renowned Spanish cheese is. Manchego. Manchego. Bingo. If you remember back to episode four, where we talked about milk and all of its magical properties, you know that sheep's milk is very different than cow's milk. Let's bring back sheep milk cheese maker Rebecca King from Garden Variety Cheese on episode four to explain this. Sheep milk has uh, quite a bit more solids to it. It has less water, basically. Um, it also has pretty high protein in comparison as well. Um, and, you know, and protein's the main structure of cheese. Um, the fat in it also is um, smaller fatty acids than cow's milk, so it's easier to digest, which is a really big issue for a lot of my customers who, who can't tolerate cow's milk. But it also gives it a different mouthfeel, too, like sheep yogurt or if you, you know, drink sheep milk. It's got, you know, as much as twice the fat as cow's milk, but it doesn't have that thick mouth feel like it's a little bit silkier and smoother um but it's it's kind of the cheesemaker's dream milk because you get a high yield and it forms a much firmer curd naturally um it's just much easier to work with than cow's milk and way easier to work with than with goat's milk okay 
So what we're hearing is sheep's milk is a lot easier to make cheese from because it's a lot richer. It already has more fat and protein. And a lot of people can digest it a lot easier because the fat globules are smaller and also they have different proteins than cow and goat's milk. So that means that sheep's milk cheese should be crazy popular, right? You know, we just want to keep the yogurt and fresh cheese supply for our regular addicted customers. So we have found with a sheep yogurt, because it is really unique, um, once people start eating it, they get really obsessed with it. <laughs> we, yeah, like I get people at the farmer's market for the couple months we don't have it and they come every week and they just have this like desperate look on their face and they're like, oh, I saw it rainbow. They still had some. So I went and bought four jars and I'm going to, you know, I had this one lady who was like keeping it for months. She's like, oh, it's still good. I'm like, are you sure it's not really sour by now? She's it's fine. She was like, Okay, I've had Rebecca's sheep's milk yogurt, and I can attest it is life-changing. Even renowned cheese author Janet Fletcher notes in her New York Times article that from 2010 to 2016, the number of entries in the American Cheese Society competition that were made exclusively from sheep's milk jumped 40%. This was enough to merit starting a whole new category exclusively for sheep's milk cheese in the next year's judging. But can you name any famous American-made sheep's milk cheese? I really can't. Even my cheesemonger friends struggle with this question. Ooh. Famous or my favorite? Oh, that's hard. I don't feel like... Oh, I see what you're doing! There is no really really famous one. You stumped me. <laughs> okay. So if sheep's milk is so great for making cheese because it has so much extra fat and protein in it and cheesemakers love it and it wins so many awards and there's this growing demand for it amongst health conscious consumers and practically every other cheese making country has an extraordinarily famous cheese made with sheep's milk. Like Italy has Pecorino, France has Roquefort, Greece has Feta, and Spain has Manchego. Then why can't we think of any famous sheep's milk cheese from the U.S.? We should probably pause for a moment of background information. As with any complex agricultural product, there are any number of reasons of why you might raise, say, sheep. Let's give my friends an opportunity to redeem themselves. Three reasons that... Americans might raise sheep, okay. uh, wool for wool and things, and milk, and meat. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> exactly. But now let's take a look at the history of sheep farming specifically in America. From a 1921 paper entitled A Brief History of the Sheep Industry in the United States, which at 109 pages was decidedly not brief. <clears throat> sheep were introduced into the English colonies almost as soon as those parts of the New World were settled. The first sheep to reach the colonies were brought to Jamestown in 1609. In 1648, there were 3,000 sheep in the colony of Virginia. 
English long wool and Dorset blood was present to a considerable extent. The Swedish immigrants settling in New Jersey brought sheep there in 1634, and the Quakers in Pennsylvania had sheep in 1683. However, the animals brought into the colonies must not be confused with the modern English breed. The sheep then were all relatively coarse, leggy, late-maturing animals with good foraging qualities. With the probable exception of the long bulls, they usually clipped but one and a half or two pounds of wool. The wool usually was of only indifferent quality. Sheep had a hard time getting a foothold in the colonies. They were all good wrestlers for their forage and able to stand considerable hardships, but conditions were far from favorable. You get the picture. Suffice to say, sheep were brought over with the original Jamestown settlers in 1609 and were used mostly for their wool. Fast forward to census data from 1850, which puts the number of sheep in the U.S. at 24 million. Interestingly enough, the estimated human resident population in the U.S. in 1850? 23,191,876. Yep. In 1850, there were more sheep in the U.S. than people. And this trend held steady. Commercial markets relied on domestic wool productions for clothes, and when the animal was older, it was sold for meat, mutton, to be exact. True love is the greatest thing in the world, except for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean. And over the years, American sheep farmers would continue to breed their sheep so that they would produce the best wool and the best meat, but not really milk. This trend of sheep farming for wool and meat continued into the 20th century, with the Pentagon putting wool on its strategic materials list because it was used in military uniforms. Because of this, the Wool Act of 1954 was enacted to give sheep farmers a hefty subsidy to keep producing that good old American wool. That was, at least, until the 1980s. It was, it was a time when uh, uh, both New Zealand and Australia were really pushing uh, lamb exports and also uh, wool. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. government decided to no longer subsidize uh, wool production, which it had done for uh, many, many, many decades because of the use of wool in the military, because it's a uh, fire retardant. But up till that point, if you if you sold wool for like $1.50 a pound, you'd get another $1.50 a pound from the government. Um, that kept a lot of domestic wool processors going. That's David Major of Vermont Shepherd Creamery. He and his wife, Jesenia, run the oldest sheep's milk creamery in the United States. David's right. The 1960s brought an influx of newfangled, cheaper synthetic fabrics like polyester and spandex that reduced the need for wool. And this, combined with the 1980s surplus of lamb and wool from New Zealand and Australia, both sheep farming powerhouses, meant that many American sheep farmers like David's family in the mid-80s and early 90s had to get creative. And then, uh, so both Australia and New Zealand were, were really sort of pushing this uh, lamb export thing. They, they no longer do to such a degree. But um, uh, that meant prices were very became very low, both for wool and for lamb. And we had this all this sheep farm thing going on. And... Uh, and decided to try uh, milking the sheep, um, and and it as it happened, it coincided right with the 
beginnings of interest in artisanal cheese uh, in this part of the world, in the United States. So it was a good time to kind of be messing around that way. Okay, let's pause for a recap. So we learned that sheep were originally milked in just about every other major cheesemaking country, except the U.S., because we had always raised sheep for their wool and meat. But then, a steady decline in domestic demand for both sheep's wool and lamb meat, coupled with the loss of the government wool subsidy and increased competition from cheaper Australian and New Zealand lamb and wool, meant that American sheep farmers had a decision to make. They could either try to milk their sheep, or they would probably go out of business. And so for the first time ever a few American farmers started milking their sheep. The breed of sheep that we have are commercial Dorsets. uh, And then uh, given the fact that they produced very little milk and didn't want to be milked, we started crossing (laughs) them with the ones that were even remotely successful. We started crossing them with uh, Tunis sheep. And then shortly after that, with Frisian. Wait, what? They didn't like to be milked? Crap, that's right. All the sheep in the U.S. have been bred for hundreds of years, specifically to produce wool and meat, not milk. The metaphor of cars might be helpful here. Um, Okay, let's think of a Ferrari. A Ferrari is a specialized car, right, that's been fine-tuned to look cool and go fast. What American sheep farmers were trying to do in the 1980s and early 90s was, in essence, turn their Ferraris into soccer mom vans? They didn't need sheep that had lustrous wool and delicious mutton chops. They needed sheep that could produce a lot of milk. But it's fine. It's fine. That's what crossbreeding is for, right? All you need is access to other healthy dairy sheep, like, say, the ones in Europe. You know, that that was a big story uh, that was sort of a subset of the whole mad cow disease um, scare that was happened, I don't know, 20 plus years ago. Uh, That's right. Mad cow disease. If you don't remember, mad cow disease was a huge issue in the mid 90s. It's a neurological disease that mostly affected the UK, where a number of people died from eating contaminated beef. And I won't go into the details because frankly, it's gross. It has nothing to do with cheese, and the reason that we got into this mess in the first place was stupid corruption in industrial agriculture, if you ask me. But suffice to say, sheep can also succumb to a version of mad cow disease, and while you can in no way get mad cow or sheep disease from drinking milk, the FDA freaked out. They freaked out so much, they banned all importation of live sheep. They banned everything. They even banned all importation of sheep genetics in any form. And that meant that sheep dairy farmers in the U.S. were landlocked. They were stuck here. Stuck trying to milk sheep that didn't want to be milked and trying to find creative ways to keep their family farms alive. That was 1989, and it's been a tough road for sheep farmers in the U.S. ever since. But again, 
sheep dairy farmers in the U.S. got creative. Instead of being able to rely on turning their flocks into expert, prolific industrial milk machines, many had to resort to an older, more traditional way of sheep dairying. What we try to do is take advantage of uh, what sheep do best, which is produce uh, milk from uh, low inputs. That is, they, they can survive very happily on almost all just grass. And we don't do kind of confinement feeding. We don't, you know, sort of pamper them in that way or treat them the way many cow dairies treat their cows, which is uh, is to bring the feed to them. Instead, we, we send them out to get their own feed on pastures. We do a lot of uh, intensive rotational grazing for most months of the year. And that has helped us to keep costs down to a reasonable level and uh, made it so that it's a profitable endeavor where it might otherwise not be. Well, I think something that is important to educate people about sheep milk in particular is it is way more expensive to produce. Um, you know, like I said, sheep give milk six to eight months per animal. And then, you know, at the most, there are an average, at least our sheep are giving about a half a gallon a day, some more, some less. Um, and then towards the end of lactation, it can be a quart or less. Again, compare that to a cow, where you can milk a cow for upwards of 10 months out of the year. And they're giving on average like eight gallons of milk a day. Eight gallons. Compared to at the peak of so many sheep, they're giving a half a gallon a day. To tackle this problem of not having very much sheep's milk to work with, many American cheesemakers have stayed small. The result is cheesemaking that is still so often governed by seasons. For example, at Vermont Shepherd, David and Jesenia only make two types of cheese. Summer and winter, and so we'll name them verano and invierno. So the all-sheep milk cheese we called verano, and it's because it's a cheese we can only make during the grazing months. Sorry, and verano means summer in Spanish, and the invierno means winter. Coming to September, their milk quantity lessens, but it becomes richer. And with that richer milk, we've actually saved that and we're able to make the cow-sheep blend. Sheep, and especially breeds that come from northern latitudes, are notoriously stubborn in when they allow themselves to mate. This is why we see such seasonality in sheep's milk, even stronger than in cow or goat. If Vermont Shepherd were, say, a large industrial dairy, they would most likely have started investing in techniques that would make their sheep produce milk year-round, either through giving them hormones or keeping them in a barn and trying to trick them into thinking the days are getting shorter. You see, the median sheep dairy in the U.S. has roughly about 125 sheep. Compare that to the median cow dairy in the U.S. with closer to 500. But Instead of becoming a large industrial dairy, Vermont Shepherd is committed to doing things the natural way. And while this has been great in keeping their cost down, it has also preserved a seasonal way of cheesemaking. And honestly, in talking about seasonality, we really should be talking about the many different breeds of sheep there are and all the different superpowers they have. But that's going to have to be another episode because we're out of time. All right, let's fast forward to 2017, and the FDA has finally allowed the first round of importation of sheep genetics. Um, we just got that um, Lacone semen imported last year, and I think it had been 10 or 15 years before that 
that um, there'd been any of the Lacone genetics brought in. It took a really long time to get that process through to completion. This was huge. There are estimates that crossbreeding American sheep with high-producing European sheep like Lacone, Frisian, and Asaf could double milk yields. This would mean it might become economically viable for more American farmers to finally raise dairy sheep. And we might see more sheep's milk cheeses being made in the U.S. along with a possible decrease in their price. That being said, as we're just at the beginning of this new exciting chapter in American sheep milk history, I think it's important to pause and take a look at where we've come from. A mere 30 years ago, there wasn't a single American sheep's milk cheese on the market. And while yes, most American sheep cheese makers are still very small these days, I like to think of sheep cheese in America as like when hipsters talk about liking restaurants before they got famous. You see, you have this opportunity to go out and try some of these domestic sheep's milk cheeses that have scratched and fought their way onto this artisanal cheese landscape. You get to try cheeses like Verano and Invierno before they become too, too popular. You get to try cheeses like Car Valley Creamery's Marissa, a cave-aged sheep's milk cheese from Wisconsin. You get to try Bellwether Farm San Andreas. You get to try Nettle Meadows' Sappy You. You get to try Bleeding Heart's Fat Bottom Girl. And you get to try Garden Varieties' Hollyhock and Moonflower. Oh man, but also definitely try their yogurt. It, it will blow your mind. So many of these producers are still small, making handmade cheeses in rhythm with seasons. And while it might come with a slightly higher price tag, at least now you know why. I'd like to thank David and Yesenia from Vermont Shepherd and Rebecca King from Garden Variety Cheese again for their expertise in this episode. To see pictures of some of the sheep's milk cheeses we talked about today, you can follow us on Instagram at Behind the Cheese Rind. Or of course, if you'd like the links to the research from today's episodes or more information about Vermont Shepherd or Garden Variety Cheese, you can visit our website at BehindTheRind.com. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast and you think we earned it, please subscribe and rate us. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook if you like. It really helps us spread the nerd cheese love and teach more people about cheese. Tune in next month for more stories and science from Behind the Rind. I feel like I'm on a roll now. And then you've got like the little cheese circles, baby bell. Oh, yeah. Hi, fellow cheese lovers. Cheese Whiz Gina here. And I invite you to subscribe to our Noon on Tuesday podcast to hear all about cheese all the time. You can listen on iTunes or SoundCloud or subscribe via FeedBurner under Noon on Tuesday. You can also watch us live every week on Facebook at Venissimo Cheese at, you guessed it, noon every Tuesday Pacific time. We're fun, we're cheesy, so tune in and tell your friends to tune in too. Ciao! The Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today.